Today we're privileged to listen to a modern short story, The Spitting Bridge by Roger Petulny, about fatherhood and family. Read by Jonathan Lukens. Enjoy. Do it. It's gross. Luce, I'm not having it in the car on the way back. Spit in the bowl. Dad! The car shudders across Tom Ugly's bridge. Accelerate, brake, clutch, sciatica. Halt, complain, whip neck, left. Crunch gears, swear. Lane change, sciatica. Confirmed, stretch. Accelerate. I wish for the millionth time I'd bought an automatic. My left hip and leg feel like roadkill, a raw, tingling mess. Lucy spits, and a string of foamy toothpaste connects her mouth to the blue plastic Ikea bowl. Toothbrush in hand, seat belt on, she starts to cry. The bridge magnifies it all. They're the worst places for tantrums. You can't stop, you, you can't exit. You have no choice but to hear and absorb and continue and resign yourself to the fact that sometimes you're just stuck with things. Oh, please, Luce, come on, we've talked about this. You, you know I'm sorry. Here's the flannel. As always, I feel like I'm apologising for my whole life. My mind drifts back to last night, the start of the routine. It takes about an hour and a half to get home to the rule on an express train. I think I prefer the train. On good days, you can read, zone out, or snooze. On bad days, it's packed, seatless, and there's at least one idiot talking in the quiet carriage. It always takes longer. Pros and cons. Today, I have no choice. I have to get back for the morning shift. I have to drive. I rent an old 1950s two-bedroom weatherboard bungalow with jasmine creepers, a white-painted front deck, and a distant view of the flat ocean. The house creaks and freezes in the winter. But I can save money, and it's got rainforests, beaches, and the sound of the sea. Occasionally, odd noises drift up the hill. A rowdy pub cover band or a bizarre 4am coal dump, like a thunderclap, from the train station. But all things considered, it's quiet and peaceful. Great for riding, and exactly where I want to retire. I think of anywhere where the sounds of nature outweigh the sounds of the city as a good space. Nature doesn't feel as alienating as people do. I don't mind getting ignored by the wind. Lucy and I have a good evening when we make it home. I teach her how to make soup, squash the garlic with a wooden spoon to squeeze out the cloves. A spoon of miso paste, fresh rosemary, chuck steak, chuck in everything else. She calls it blur blur soup, and I call it throw in everything from the fridge that will go off into a pot. With decent bread and lots of salt, it's pretty nice. We wait for it to reduce, and Lucy spreads out a blanket on the dining room floor and builds a castle of pillows for her two toy dogs, Charlie and Odin. They are the central characters in her latest adventure story. We watch a documentary during dinner, The Secret Life of Cats, and I have a beer and nod off. I dream about her birth. I wake up with a start and a panicked look at the clock. We are well into tomorrow's prep time. 
swearing. I turn off the TV, haul loose off complaining for a quick bath and pyjamas, groggily read her the shortest picture book I can find, turn her lights out, collapse into bed, and I toss and turn and watch the clock, unable to sleep because I know I have to get up early, and I think about how when you're an insomniac, there's nothing more exhausting than watching the sunrise, and I'm broken from a REM cycle by the 6.30 alarm. My body clock screams at me to shield my face, but I groan and creak to my feet, have some instant coffee and toast, trim my beard, dress, tick off the necessities. One, Lucy's lunch. Sandwich, fruit, muesli bar, biscuit, what else? Uh, Kids have new stuff now. Squeezable yoghurt, combo cheese, dip packets, etc., but... All I can think of is what I ate as a kid. A sandwich. I stress out, settle for crackers and a a slice of cheddar. Tick. Lunch and water bottle in her bag. Bag in car. Find yesterday's school notes. Put aside to read later. Hope nothing pertains to today. Tick. Get Lucy's toothbrush and paste from the bathroom. Put them in a bowl. Bowl into the car. Tick. Four, pour breakfast cereal into another bowl. Pour some milk into a jar. Lid on jar, grab a spoon, all of it into the car. Tick. Five, find Lucy's discarded school uniform and shoes. Get some clean socks, put in the car. Tick. Six, go and lift Lucy out of her bed. Carry her, sleepy and yawning and still wrapped in a blanket, out to the car and put her in. And somehow fasten her seatbelt. Start driving to Sydney. Now, traffic starts at the bottom of the hill on Lawrence Hargreaves Drive. It takes forever for someone to just let me into the arterial procession, drifting past the rules shop fronts, cafes, old DVD store, and the line of Illawarra flame trees. We climb the Bull Eye Pass, where the Prince's Highway curves steeply up the escarpment that separates the National Park from the sea. I wonder who lives in those highway houses. Lay it up the incline like roof tiles, their impossible driveways butted out up against the busy road. How do they get out? Oh, then the houses end, and I get stuck behind a semi-trailer, crawling through about five kilometres of rainforest. The beeping of car horns echoes off the cliff for a few minutes, and Lucy starts to wake up properly. She rubs her eyes, yawns, and... Starts going through her clothes. Dad! Undies! Oh, trouble. I didn't have time to wash everything, so I've left her wearing yesterday's uniform and I forgot to pack fresh underwear. I swear at myself. To myself. She gets dressed in angry, jerky movements, managing to squeeze and drag her pyjamas and school uniform in around the belt without taking it off. A feat which has taken practice. I get annoyed in the back of my head. For God's sake, I'm doing all this for you. But then I feel bad, thinking how car trips for kids are meant to be about holidays and camping and the beach. Daily gridlock is the secret life of adults. I try and distract her. Did you have a nice dream, Luce? Anything cool, like about dogs or unicorns or something? I take my eye off the road for a second, trying to engage her, and... Almost run into the semi. 
We jerk back and forth in the seat and we do a little stop start up the hill, gears crunching and the seatbelt stretches and whiplashes erratically around her dishevelled uniform. The sciatica begins. I hate this, Dad. We can't reach the summit soon enough. And then everybody accelerates out onto the F6 with a huge collective sigh of relief. The F6 is technically a freeway, but it will have tolls, I'm certain, when they extend it in 2020-something-something. I don't care. It beats stopping and starting. The cars merge smoothly into the space, thickening, absorbed into the fast-moving northbound metal river. We relax and... I hand Lucy a bowl of cereal from where I've had it perched on my lap. Mindful of highway patrols, we cruise at a cautious 115 kilometres per hour past a menagerie of crow-infested roadkill. Kangaroo, wombat and occasional deer. But Lucy's too hungry to notice it today. She pours the cereal, unscrews the jar and tips out a little milk. She's learnt not to overfill and spill and carefully spoons cornflakes into her mouth. She's calmer with food. I vague in and out, and my thoughts drift around the memory of Lucy's birth. Meg and I pick our way through a patchy landscape, much like the ones flying past the car. We step around spindly, blackened red gums, tilting in the poor, rocky soil, our legs brushing through the grey-green coastal banksia. The grasses are a salad of warm colours in the morning sun, Low-growth, yellow-green expanses, peppered with blotches of scrubby brown, russet orange, and fire-controlled, burnt-out black. I feel sad at all the regrowth, and I want to squeeze my eyes and glimpse the time before the damage. But obviously I'm driving, so I do my open-eyed best. I see Meg in a floral dress, planning everything, as usual. Kid-friendly blues festivals... Prenatal classes, baby names. We spread a blanket in the bracken, and I read Auden to uh, the bump. <laughs> oh, what are you thinking, Luce? I ask, as she works her way through breakfast. She pauses and looks out the window. I wish my brain had wings, so we could fly around and see how other people live, and, and also go into your own life earlier. Me too, I think. A few days after the walk, Meg starts bleeding from preeclampsia, and Lucy is born a controlled rush. Doctors float and cluster like masked bees. There's a hasty C-section, a spinal block, a cocktail of morphine, fentanyl and bivapurocaine, and I, I, I hold Meg's hand. That is my job. Hold hands and, and don't pass out. I'm referred to as the dad, a third-person reference to a fifth wheel, but I take this job seriously, and Meg seems fine, if shocked and weakened. Lucy is born safely, and she mules like a kitten, and I just keep mumbling, beautiful, beautiful. And then she opens her eyes for the first time and looks at me. Dark eyes, almost completely black. Astonishing. Everything changes. We crest the hill just before waterfall, decelerate into this favourite police speed trap, and the billboards begin, distracting me from pastoral things. Dog-minding homes, coffee academies, 
University placements. A huge Daily Telegraph poster yawns beside the highway, proclaiming, we're for Sydney, which I guess implies that everyone else is against it. We crawl through Heathcote and Engadine, followed by the long dip of the concrete, noise-reducing wall of dolphins, and Loftus narrowly avoid the backed-up traffic struggling at President Avenue, turn right onto Grand Parade and to Sydney proper. Three lanes of solid traffic transect the Shire, cutting a swathe through the low-rise 70s modernist-style brick houses squatting under huge eucalyptus. Old suburbia. We reach the Georges River and swerve onto Tom Ugly's Bridge, where the spitting and crying begins. We pass between two dirty sandstone sentry towers, and under the riveted hoops of the steel truss spans lining the antiquated bridge, the ribs of the disappearing modern age. I try to tear her up. Hey, we're crossing the spitting bridge. The what? You know, like the one in Mossman, only messier. Oh, she replies, dull to my dad's joke. I thought you said splitting bridge. What? Like what mums and dads do. My guts lurch. But I run with it. Hey, Luce, bridges connect things too, you know. Sometimes, um, sometimes they're all we have. I'm struggling. They uh, help really different people stay connected. Even mums and dads who want different things. Or who uh, want the same things, but in different places, you know. <clears throat> I glance at the uniform jumble of McMansions elevated and crowding the rocky rises around Oyster Bay. The tradies of Sylvania and Blakehurst in a stare-off for Watercastle supremacy. Where for Sydney? Lucy doesn't reply. She just holds the bowl of spit in her lap and waits for the car to stop. We're in the thick of it now. We duck and weave through Cogra and Rockdale, where shop fronts crowd the highway. Urban street gyms, lighting stores, bike shops, kitchen showrooms, Christmas warehouses, auto mechanics, bargain electronics, cash converters, VIP lounge pubs, petrol stations, car dealerships, and the omnipresent smell of barbecue chicken. We crest the hill at Forest Road, and I see the Sydney CBD skyline loom for the first time. Stop, starch, clutch, sciatica. Breathe. We pass the towering apartments at Walleye Creek and drive onto the Cook's River Bridge. I try to open some distance from the car ahead, forgetting that in Sydney, my safe space means someone else's opportunity, and a black Hilux with a lopsided P-plate cuts in front of me and slams on the brakes. Tires screeching, I avoid ramming his tow bar by centimetres. This happens to me because I drive a Yaris, I'm sure. My temporary economical city car has become permanent, mumsy, invisible, unmasculine, drive up my ass and run me off the road bogan bait. They wouldn't do it if I had a great big fuck-off four-wheel drive, that's for sure. I'm so angry, I don't even have an automatic. Seething, I cut across and pull in alongside the Hilux. Beeping the horn, I wave my hand angrily and scowl. He responds by powering down his window and he leans a tattooed arm on the sill. Then he spits on my car.
I just want to yell at him. But Lucy sits next to me with big solemn eyes and, and then she powers down her window, lifts up the bowl of white foamy toothpaste spit and throws its contents at the Hilux. Flecks of spit pattern the door and window like bird shit. The driver, about to roar off, judders to a surprised halt, the spit congealing on his doorframe and leaving a white smear at his window auto-closes. I think he started yelling. I leave him stranded and drive off quickly, crazily. <laughs> well, Lucy's giggling, but I can't join in. My heart pounds and I check my rear view mirror every few seconds, scared of escalation, of the yelling. Oh, the yelling. I don't know why Meg changes. Postnatal depression, the confrontation with mortality, or maybe it's just lacking control for the first time in her organised life. She begins becoming afraid and angry, and I mistakenly try to adjust to her new normal. Less friend time, more cooking, cleaning, care time. I let her work and exercise frenetically, obsessively. I swallow my outbursts, but our future slides... I cling to leaving the city and living somewhere quiet, spacious, affordable, scholarly. And then I find her on domain, looking up apartments. I protest. This was not our plan. The anger leaps between us, an airborne pathogen, magnifying her suffering, eroding our intelligence. And soon all our interactions are defined by yelling. Backed into a corner one night, I see Lucy's dark blue baby eyes follow our fight solemnly from the lounge. And I know I have to leave. But the agony of separation is the illusion that the worst is over when you exit the building, when the repercussions just go on and on. Meg informed me, coldly, that Lucy was going to school in Sydney, which left me five options. One, return to yelling. Untick. Two, fight for full custody. Lucy split from mother. Untick. Three, give full to custody. Lucy split from father. Untick. Live in Sydney. Option number four. And be built over by batteries of high-density boxes bursting along the seams of railways and highways of Walleye Creek, Dulwich Hill, Carrington Road and Mascot, a sprawling, towering global march of whitewashed, rendered walls, faux sandstone and brick interiors, grids of balconies clad in alternating lime green panels, brown bars and orange-yellow tiles, bespoke artworks leering from security entrances. Untick. Five. Commute and build a bridge and get over it every day. Sometimes you're just stuck with things. We crawl through Tempe and St. Peter's and Lucy taps my shoulder. Dad, can I tell you something? Sure, I say. Exhausted. She tells me about a new invention she made last night when I thought she was asleep. She attached eight toilet rolls together with elastic bands and created the world's first ever meganoculars. They are awesome and huge and perfect for a spider to look through. I stare blankly ahead for a second. And then I laugh. She's left with them on her table, and I can use them any time I like. 
You're a wise old girl. You know what? I'm not old, Dad. You're old. I think of wisdom as intelligence that survives suffering, whatever the age. I pull in beside her inner west primary school at 9.02. She quickly gathers up her things, gives me a hug and a kiss, and hops out of the car with a shower of cornflake crumbs. She starts off, turns back, smiles, and waves energetically to me with her whole body, her oversized pink school bag slipping and sliding across her shoulders. Then her face grows both serious and hopeful. I wish I could spend more time with you, Dad. Like, not so much in a rush. Maybe soon? Then she turns and runs for the school gate. I blow a kiss, swing the car, and start back for Wollongong in my working day. Every time I hear her say it, a tiny little piece of me curls up inside, leaf-like. But I just look at the road and keep on driving, and think of platitudes, equal time, save for a house, a better life out of the city, the impossible mix so that we can have a mum and a dad. What I really want to say is, you can stay with me forever. I stand on my deck in Thoreau that night, and I look through the meganoculars, past the red-orange mess of fallen flame tree blossoms, under the power lines, beyond the lantana, and the wire fence of the state rail tracks, across the peaked colour-bond roofs of distant houses and the lush green of the coast, and out, out to the flat steel-blue liminality, where the horizon meets the darkening sky. Ships glide along that straight line, unrushed, till they slip off the earth and vanish. I think about the future with hope. Solitude for two. I look out at the sea. Dark blue, almost completely black. Astonishing. That was The Spitting Bridge by Roger Petulny, read by Jonathan Lukens. I hope you enjoyed. See you next week. Thank you.